Your Bibles to John chapter 2. We're starting a new topic in our series on our studies in the life of Christ. We're going to look at Christ's encounters beginning this morning. And the first one we're going to look at is Jesus cleanses the temple. Jesus cleanses the temple. Let's read verses 13 through 21 this morning. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these away, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a, uh, 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 do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remember that it was written, "Zeal for your house has eaten me up." So the Jews answered and said to him, "What sign do you show us since you do these things?" Jesus answered and said to them, "Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up." Then the Jews says, "It has taken forty six years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days?" But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus has said. When you read the Gospels, most of them are filled with miracles or parables. But there's a lot written also about the encounters that Jesus had with different people. For instance, he had encounters with Nicodemus, the woman at the well, Zacchaeus, the rich young ruler, the religious uh, religious leaders, just to name a few. But Jesus was a master. I mean, he was the best at using these encounters that he had with people to teach them the most important things in life. And when those encounters turned hostile, which were triggered by his enemies, Jesus was never overcome by the sneaky tactics that the enemy used. But he always came out the winner every single time, much to the bewilderment and the frustration of his enemies. So this first encounter of Jesus deals with the cleansing of the temple. Now the Gospels record for us twice when Jesus went into a defiled temple and then went about cleansing it, much to the irritation of the temple officials. The first time Jesus encountered a defiled temple was when he first started his earthly ministry. We see that here in the book of the Gospel of John. And the second time was at the end of his ministry. And we see that in Matthew, Mark and Luke. But both accounts of cleansing the temple was very much alike. So we're going to use the Gospel of John to look at the details. But we're going to learn different lessons from the two cleansings. Both cleansings of the temple took place at Passover, which was the most important religious happening of the year for the Jews. I mean, it was the special meeting of special meetings on the Jewish calendar. You see, God believes in meetings. He schedules them for our benefit. But like the Passover celebration, special meetings require a special effort and sacrifice. But... 
If you want special spiritual blessings, you'll always have to put forth a special effort and sacrifice to obtain these blessings. Today, because of poor interest and attendance of the people, our churches today don't have or not having as many special meetings as they used to have. And I remember early on in in my Christian life, you know, when there were conferences or there were retreats or there were special meetings, they would be filled because people had an interest in spiritual things. But it's not true today. You remember last year we had we had what I thought was going to be a packed out conference on how we got our Bible. How we got the word of God. The very thing that we center our studies on the very thing that we we center our lives on and how many questions people have about the bible and how we got the bible and all the junk that the world says that the bible is written by men and you can't trust it well this conference would have eliminated many of those questions and and edified our, our time in the word of god And I was really, you know, talk to Pastor Tony. I was really concerned that we weren't going to be able to fit the people. Hardly anybody came. Hardly anybody came. To learn about the teaching of the word of God. And as Christians, we would definitely say, oh, the word of God is so important to me. And yet. They weren't interested enough to come and to participate and to learn. And as you've seen, we haven't had many things going on in the church. Because we can't get people to come. They just don't seem to have an interest in spiritual things. Come to church on Sunday because it's our duty and and that's it. But that's going to change this year. But that's the thing. There is poor interest in spiritual things. But here, this lack of special meetings like conferences and retreats, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't hurt the church per se. It lessens the people. It lessens your spiritual blessings. They're designed for the building of the body of Christ, for the edification of the church, so that we'll learn and know the God that we serve, that we'll know how to share the word of God. The basis of the cleansing of the temple is the holiness of God. Jesus' main ministry is purification, it's holiness. Of which Hebrews says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. This is what redemption is all about. Redemption is about cleansing the sinner from his or her sins. Jesus came to earth to cleanse sinners from their sins with his precious blood. And holiness needs to be emphasized more in our churches than ever before. But today, there's a lot of compromise That's being promoted. Instead of holiness. The lowered standards of marriage. The lowered standards of morality. Shows the evidence of compromise in the church. Popularity is more important than purity in a lot of churches. Now there's a lesson here. The need for a second cleansing came within just a few years of the first cleansing. Think about that which teaches us about the desperate wickedness and the fallen condition of the religious leaders of the temple. They had turned a deaf ear to all of the counsel and all of the rebuke that they received 
uh, the first time. And you know what? They were just given up. They were given over to a carnal mind. If a person truly doesn't repent, they will quickly go back to their sin like a dog returns to his vomit or the pig to his mire. And the cleansing speak of the time when Jesus will return to rule and reign on earth. That's the symbolism of it. Listen to Malachi 3, 1 through 4. The Old Testament prophesies of this still future event. Malachi says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way for me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will will be pleasant uh, to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Notice it was all about purifying. These cleansing in the temple not only typify the future coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but can also be said to be a partial fulfilling of this prophecy about his coming back to earth. But the fulfilling of this prophecy will be much more complete in the future. And as it is written with many prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus, the words were purposely meant to have a double fulfillment. A partial one when Jesus came the first time to suffer and a complete fulfillment when Jesus comes again to rule and to reign on earth. But now we're going to look at the temple and how it became defiled and as a result needing to be cleansed. The defilement of the temple happened in the outer court of the temple. Now, we find this out from what the Bible tells us when Jesus said in John, notice 2.14, He found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. The word translated temple here is the Greek word which speaks of the Gentile court, which was the outer court or first of three courts. This outer court where the defilement took place, it was huge. Now, many times when we see paintings and pictures of, of, of things that, you know, of scenes that we read in the Bible, we get the, 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 the painter's picture. We get the painter's idea. Many times it is not to scale. We don't see the, 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 the big, biblical uh, portions of, of what it, is, it really is in size. Because this court area was, had about 14 acres which is about 13 football fields. And according to Alfred Edersheim, he wrote in his book, the whole temple area included all of the courts and the sanctuary measured 1,000 feet by 1,000 feet, which is well over 20 acres. So picture in your mind this temple court, about 20 acres in size, is what Jesus went in and cleansed. It wasn't just like a 10 by foot room. So when you see how really huge the temple sanctuary and its courts are, you get a better picture of how huge this cleansing really was. That's mentioned in the scriptures. Many times you see, like I said, different different biblical paintings, but it's not true to size, so you really don't get the true picture. Now, there were two conditions that brought about the defilement of the temple uh, 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 court. 
Again, verse 14 says, He found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. Those two things that, were, that, that defiled the court were the sacrifices that were to be used in the Passover service and the shekels for the temple tax. So the sacrifice and the shekels is what brought the defilement. Now, the sacrifices and the shekels in and of themselves, there's nothing wrong with them. The two conditions, that is, the sacrifices and the shekels didn't justify the defilement. That's not what defiled the temple court. But those things made it easier for, the, for evil minds to bring about the defilement. See, where there's money, it doesn't take much for the, the, the evil mind to corrupt itself. Sacrifices, many times we can... We can define sacrifices and, and make them based on what we think, our own opinions. You see, evil minds are always looking for situations that will help them do their evil and even seem like it does here that it justifies their evil. It can be done uh, like, like in, a, in a religious disguise. See, Passover time required that the people bring certain sacrifices to the temple. They had to bring like sheep and oxen and doves, which were all involved here. Now, doves were the sacrifices of the poor people because they couldn't afford a lamb or oxen. Jesus would have a special place in his heart for the dove sacrifices. Because if you remember, Mary and Joseph brought doves to the temple to offer regarding Mary's required purification after giving birth to Jesus. You see, Joseph and Mary were poor. And they couldn't afford a more expensive sacrifice like a lamb. So instead, they offered two doves, which were allowed for poor people. And because many of the people who came to the Passover came from faraway places and many miles away from Jerusalem, their situation made it just about impossible for them to bring, think of it, an oxen or a lamb, a bigger animal on that long trip to Jerusalem. So they would have to buy an animal to sacrifice after they got to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, to meet this need, a place was set up in the court of the Gentiles in this huge area that we were just talking about. And and, uh, it would be a place for them where you could buy animals for the sacrifice. Now, this was the only court that could provide an acceptable place for the animals. And the size of the court made it possible for hundreds and hundreds of animals to be brought in to be sold. But this accommodation for those who needed to buy sacrifices was inspired by evil minds. And it promoted evil, even though it looked like it was helping people to worship. People who were in difficult situations. The word money changers means to make small change. To make small change. These money changes were needed to provide the small half shekel that the people needed to pay the temple tax. All Jews, proselytes, women, slaves, and minors that were accepted had to pay the annual tax of half a shekel. And since many of the Passover participants came from other countries with different currencies, they had to go to a currency exchange and exchange their foreign money for the temple tax. And and many times when you travel to a different country, they have uh, money uh, exchange places. When I'd go to South America, you know, on mission trips, you know, we'd take our American dollars to a a foreign currency exchange and we'd change their currency for ours. And this is what was going on here. 
to meet the needs of the people for changing their money, then the money changers would set up their little booths in the country towns a month before the feast. Then shortly before Passover time, the money changers were then allowed to move to the large Gentile court in the temples to set up their businesses. But this accommodation in the temple court was inspired by evil minds and evil intentions and encouraged a lot of evil, even though it and the animals and the accommodation look, hey, we're helping the people religiously who were in difficult situations. But the main offenders in this defilement were the priests at the temple. They were an evil bunch. Because this particular evil of the priests, which promoted this defilement, was greed. It was covetousness. Because they were full of greed, notice, they saw a big opportunity to pad their wallets by allowing animal sellers and money changers in the temple court. Under the appearance, okay, under the appearance of convenience for the worshipers. The greedy priests made arrangements with the animal sellers and money changers to use the court for their business. The renting of stands and spaces, even the assuring of a certain percentage of the sales for themselves would all contribute much to the priests' wallets. And the priests could help the sales by their own actions. For example, the priests had to inspect the animals brought by the people before the sacrifices could be altered, uh, you know, made on the altar. And, and you know, these priests that had the corrupt minds, they, they'd go in there and, you know, you had to take the animal up for inspection and the priest would look at it and he'd make sure they didn't have any disease or, or any open wounds or any deformities of the animal. And the picture was, you were to give God your best. And so you were to pick out the best animal and you were to offer it to the Lord. But you see, these crooked priests, crooked priests, they look at it and they go through it. Oh, no, no, you know, this, this, you, can't, you can't use this animal. It has a defect or it has a disease or there's something wrong with it. Now what do you do? Well, now you got to go to the seller that the priest said, oh, you can go over to this guy over here and he's got animals for you to sell. And they could bump up the prices. Now, the inspection of the animal was legitimate because you were, according to the Old Testament law, you were to give God a a good animal for sacrifice. So the priest would inspect it and make sure it was okay for sacrifice. They had to meet a certain standard. Again, they couldn't have any blemishes. But the priests, in their greed, could always fix the game. They could always find something wrong with the animal that you brought for the sacrifice that that, that wasn't purchased from one of the temple sellers. So when the priest rejected the animal, the worshiper would then be forced to buy one of the temple seller's animals. So the prices were raised up because the sellers had the buyers at a huge advantage. The money changers also charged high prices for changing the money. And many times when we went to South America, you could go to different money changers and and some would give you less for your money than other places. So, you know, you had to look around. And usually when we went there, the 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 people who lived there who come in, it would come in and, and you know, take care of us. They would show us the take us to the best places where you got the most money, you know, most uh, in exchange for your money. But, you know, they could raise their prices. They could short they could cheat you on the amount of money they were supposed to give you. So, because they would charge high prices for changing the money. 
And like the animal sellers, the money changers also had the customer at a huge disadvantage because the customer needed that half shekel in order to pay the temple tax because foreign money was not acceptable. So you see, you could clearly see why Jesus called this temple a den of thieves after one of the cleansings. And you see, it was the priests, the leaders who were ripping off the people, uh, ripping off the worshipers because they allowed it to happen. You know, so you can see why Jesus responded the way he did. He wasn't happy about what was going on in the house of God. When Jesus came on the scene, he saw what was taking place. And Jesus reacted forcefully on the spot to clean up what was going on. Now, some people may think that Jesus lost his temper when he saw what was going on. But that's not true at all. And it's a, it's a ridiculous accusation because you see, a man with a lost temper, think about it, picture this now, again, the size of this place, hundreds and hundreds of animals, the stalls in the booths for the money changers that were set up and the animals that were being sold. A man that had lost his temper, all right, couldn't have done what Jesus did in this situation. In verse 16 here of chapter 2, we read, And he said to those who sold doves, notice, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. This shows us that he didn't turn the cages of the doves over. Because they would have been flying all over the temple. He just had them removed. He says, take these things away. This shows us that Jesus didn't lose his temper. It also also shows us that you can be angry against sin without losing control of your temper and your emotions and your self-control. Righteous indignation is not evil. It is not a loss of your emotions. When Jesus got angry, it was never because of something that was done to him personally. It was always something that was done against fellow man. And the wisdom that Jesus used in cleaning the temple didn't reveal a person who had lost their temper and control of their emotions, but it revealed a person that was in total control of all of, their fac- of, all of his faculties. Now here in verse 15, notice it tells us that Jesus used a whip of cords in at least this first cleansing. But there's nothing that says that he used it on the people. The scriptures imply that he used it only on the animals. Now that makes sense. Because anybody that owned an animal, especially farmers, know that probably it was necessary to to use the whip to get the animals to move out of the court, especially the oxen. And notice that Jesus didn't just drive out the sellers of the animals, but also the buyers of the animals. Even though those buyers, some of them were being ripped off by the sellers. This tells us that the buyers were partly to blame for this defilement because they were going along with the program. They didn't say anything. They didn't protest. They went along with the defilement. Now, we might often do that by shopping and supporting at businesses that support ungodly and evil things. And then you become a part of that evil. 
Remember that it's God's money that we're spending, whether it's from your paycheck, because God gives you the ability to, to work. He gives, you, he gives you the job. So the money that we have, it's God's money. Plain and simple. And remember, it's God's money that you're spending. If it's a church's money, and it's being spent for ungodly programs and ungodly ministries, and you know about it, you need, you need to keep your offering and you need to find a better church. If apostate speakers come to your church, don't attend the church service and you look for a better church. If an unholy marriage is going to take place, how can you go and honor it? A lot of people disprove of such marriages, but they'll still go and congratulate the people. A man or a woman with, 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 with unbiblical principles for getting a divorce marries another, and, and, and we go, oh, congratulate. How can we do that? They didn't have biblical grounds for divorce. There was an adulterous relationship that brought it about. And they get married and we go and attend like everything was wonderful and we congratulate them. How can we do that? How can you bless something that God hasn't blessed? When you choose not to go along, you'll probably, you know, with, uh, when you choose to not go along with ungodly practices, you, you'll probably get called names. And a lot of people will frown on you. But it's our duty to oppose evil. We might not be doing the person, we, we might not be the person doing the evil, but by taking part in it, we become just as guilty. Now in Mark eleven sixteen, Mark tells us that the people that were loaded down with merchandise, they were taking shortcuts through this area. They were making the, the, the temple court a shortcut to go from one part of the city to another. They made it like a business thoroughfare. Jesus was outraged by this obvious disregard for the temple area that was specifically set apart for Gentile use and wouldn't allow people to use the area for a shortcut. Jesus said, no way. Jesus stopped all unlawful traffic through the temple area. Because you see, the temple was a place of worship. It wasn't a shortcut to be used in people's travels from one place of the city to the other. In verse 16, notice what Jesus said. He said, do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. In Matthew 21, 13, Jesus said, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Notice Jesus used three names to tell us what the temple should be and how it should be used. He called it my father's house, my house, and a house of prayer. They tell us that the temple is the house of the sovereign, my father. He says it's the house of salvation when he said, my house. And it's the house of prayer when he called it house of prayer. You see, these three names tell us that the temple is used for praising, for purifying, for praying. So when Jesus cleansed, cleaned up the temple, opposition soon reared its ugly head and they came against Jesus. But those who didn't like what Jesus was doing, 
bit off a little more than they could chew coming against Jesus because Jesus put the protesters to shame instead of the other way around. They were trying to discredit what he was doing. The protest of the first cleansing was a challenge of Jesus' authority for cleansing the temple. Notice what the Jews asked him in verse 18. He said, they said, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? Now, this was an insulting Jesus to question. Because it showed the darkness of the people and the corruption in their hearts. Again, 20 acres was the size of this Gentile court with all of the, the, the animals and all of the, the, the booths and the selling that was going on and the animals and all everything. All by himself, Jesus drove out all of the sellers, all of the buyers, and all of the money changers. I mean, that was an amazing thing to do. And no temple guard could stop him. No one was able to stop him. Jesus had total control of everything going on. No one else could have done what Jesus did so quickly and so completely as he did. It truly showed the Lord's divine power. But they still had the nerve to ask Jesus, hey, give us a sign. Give us a sign that you have the right to do this. Again, what an insult. Because they were walking in darkness. It showed their corruption. A good person would have been excited and rejoiced in what Jesus did. Oh, it's about time somebody did something about the corruption in this temple. He cleansed the temple of defilement and he made a more spiritual environment for the people to worship in. The church should have an be, be a spiritual environment to come and worship. And if Jesus' critics had been good people, they would have honored him. They would have showed them, or they would have showed him their appreciation in different ways. But unbelief isn't interested in honoring holiness. Corrupt people aren't interested in spiritual blessing, but in making profit for themselves or whatever benefits them. And because this cleansing of the temple hurt their business, it hurt their wallets, they were really upset and they challenged Christ's authority. We read more of things like this in Acts 19, 23-26, when Demetrius, remember a silversmith, he had a big business, Acts says. He made little Greek goddesses, little statues, little Greek goddesses of Diana. And he employed many craftsmen and they were very busy. And he called them together along with others employed in, in, in like trades. And they said, hey, look. He said, you know that our wealth comes from this business. But as you've seen and heard, this man, Paul, has persuaded many people that handmade gods aren't really gods at all. They, they lost business. They got angry. That's what's happening here in the temple. When the leaders asked Jesus for a sign, Jesus answered his critics, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. <laughs> Verse 19, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But Jesus was speaking of his resurrection. This was the greatest sign of all. There's no greater sign or proof of the authority of Jesus Christ than his resurrection. 
In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. But Jesus did raise from the dead and he defeated sin and he defeated death as a result of the resurrection. So he can be our savior. And his resurrection is what separates us from faith in all the other so-called gods, Buddha, Mohammed, Confucius, and anybody, anybody else you want to add to the list. They're all dead. They're all still in their graves, but our Lord Jesus Christ is alive. So not only does the resurrection make our faith separate from all the other religions, but it also makes it superior and more satisfactory to any and all religions. And Jesus said it himself, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He's the only way. He's the only truth. And he's the only life. Because of his resurrection. But here's the sad thing. The critics didn't care about this sign. They didn't care about the resurrection. The greatest sign ever, the resurrection, it didn't have any value to them. They wanted entertainment, not edification. They wanted what was right in their own eyes. They wanted to be delivered from Roman rule. Why? It was to their benefit. They didn't want to be delivered from the rule of sin. They weren't interested in spiritual things, only in material and physical things. They said to Jesus, wait... It's taken 46 years to build this temple and you say you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. It shows that the Jews were spiritually blind and they didn't understand the fact that Jesus was talking about himself and not the building called the temple when he talked about destroying the temple and raising it up in three days. You know, these guys were saying, who does this man think he is? thinking he can rebuild the temple in just three days. It's, it's already taken 46 years in the making, and you know that it wasn't finished for 10 more years. Mark says in chapter eleven eighteen, when the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed, astonished at his teaching. In the second cleansing... The religious leaders were plotting on how they might kill him. They wanted him dead because they were afraid of him. They were afraid of his influence and they wanted him to just go away. They were astonished at his doctrine. This was the heart of the matter. They were blown away by what he was saying. And that's pretty much the thinking of the world. They don't like what Jesus has to say. They don't like saying that, that, that we are sinners and that none is good and that, you know, apart from him, we're never going to make it to heaven. They don't want to hear that. This is the heart of the matter. Jesus was, ta- Jesus was now taking the respect and the popularity away from these religious leaders. The religious leaders were losing their grip. They were losing their hold and their popularity of the people. Jesus was taking their crowd. They were very jealous. They wanted to be the ones, they wanted to be admired. They wanted to be respected in religion. 
But now the people were giving their respect and their attention to Jesus instead, and the critics were just furious, jealous. So in closing, verse 22 says, After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. Notice, they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus said. This verse says the disciple believed two things. They believed the scriptures, the word of God, and they believed Jesus. There are no more two, there are no more two trustworthy objects to believe than the word of God and the Lord Jesus. Even though people are likely to doubt the Bible and the God of the Bible and instead believe whatever is the most unbelievable and unreliable, People believe the news media, TV documentaries and about religion and God and evolution, but they won't believe the Bible. Believing the word of God and Jesus will benefit you all through eternity. You'll never be disappointed for believing the scriptures. You'll never be disappointed for believing the Savior. In Psalm 1911, it says, They, speaking of God's words, they are a warning to your servant, a great reward for those who obey them. God's word is a warning to us. And it will help us to stay out of a lot of trouble. And God's word is a great reward also for those who follow it. That's not true with other things that that man believes in. Other objects that man believes in often disappoint them and lead them straight to hell. But faith in the divine word of God and Jesus Christ will result in the salvation of our souls. There's no better benefit, no greater benefit than trusting in the word of God. In fact, there are many religious institutions in the world that don't believe Jesus in the Bible. And in spite of this great value of God's word, it seems more popular to not believe Christ in the Bible. And how terribly sad that is. Father, we thank you again for this this lesson this morning, Father. And Lord, help us to, Father, to desire that which is holy. And God, help us to stand up against that which is evil, Lord. That's the stand that we must take, God. Lord, help us to be interested in spiritual things, God. Things that will lead us, things that will guide us into all truth. Things that will lead us to the kingdom of God when our days are over here. Father, help us not be compromisers. Help us not to fear man. Help us not to fear what this world says about Christ and about God's word. We know in whom we believe. We are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Let us live for him. Let the world see Jesus Christ in us. 
Let them see something solid that they can hold on to. Let us be anchored deep. Let us be standing on the rock that is immovable. Let us be headed for the kingdom that cannot be shaken. For a God who is not dead. There are so many valuable proofs that our God reigns. So let us take a stand. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior. But you realize it's it's time. It's time that I take a stand for righteousness sake. That I make Jesus my Lord, my Savior and receive his forgiveness for my sins.